Thanks for joining me for the start of a new epistle. Here we are, Romans chapter 1. I'll be reading in the Phillips translation. This letter comes to you from Paul, servant of Jesus Christ, called as a messenger and appointed for the service of that gospel of God, which was long ago promised by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel is centered in God's Son, a descendant of David by human genealogy and patently marked out as the Son of God by the power of that spirit of holiness which raised him to life again from the dead. He is our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom we received grace and our commission in his name to forward obedience to the faith in all nations. And of this great number, you at Rome are also called to belong to him. To you all then, loved of God and called to be Christ's men and women, grace and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it strikes me as I, as I read through those words, and as, again, we are starting out a new epistle, the glorious book of Romans, it strikes me what Paul is up to in that opening. I think he wants the fellowship at Rome and all of us so inextricably tied up and tied into the name and person of Jesus that there's really nowhere else for us to go. I mean, consider that preamble I just read you in this way. Jesus, whose servant Paul is, as an appointed messenger of his gospel, which for ages past had been promised by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, who were all of them looking only to Jesus, who is God's Son and the center of the gospel's good news. Really, the gospel is Jesus. That descendant, yes, of King David, clearly marked as the Son of God, how? Well, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who, seeing him dead in our sins, raised him to life again. Yes, Jesus, who is our Lord, and who personally brought us grace, and who commissioned us personally to bear his name and his way to all the nations. Friends, our belongingness, our position as those beloved by God, our calling as men and women, the grace and peace of God the Father, all of them come from Jesus. It's only Jesus that Paul wants you to know, and to know him, by the way, as he really is. I would say that's going to be the heart of the book of Romans. So let's continue on into it. We'll be picking back up in verse 8. I must begin by telling you how I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all, since the news of your faith has become known everywhere. Before God, whom I serve with all my heart in the gospel of his Son, I assure you that you are always in my prayers. I am constantly asking him that he will somehow make it possible for me now, at long last, to come to Rome. Which, by the way, is an important wording to note. Listen again. I am constantly asking him at long last to come to Rome. Paul had never been with these people. He had never personally met them on the ground. 
Biblical scholars believe that preparatory to eventually visiting them, while he was still in the midst of gathering the gift for the Jerusalem church, which of course we've been hearing plenty about in our meanderings through his letters to the Corinthians, well, Paul, very likely now in Corinth for that promised third visit, if you recall, gathering up their funds for Jerusalem, is now writing this letter to begin a relationship with those believers in the capital of the empire. I can't believe I actually wrote and then said that sentence. That was a really long sentence. But you see, his prayers for them have been numerous. And now he wants to bring their full attention to what is properly theirs in Jesus. I'll keep reading. I am longing to see you. I want to bring you some spiritual strength. And that will mean that I shall be strengthened by you, each of us helped by the other's faith. Then I should like you to know, my brothers, that I have long intended to come to you, but something has always prevented me. For I should like to see some results among you, as I have among other Gentiles. I feel myself under a sort of universal obligation. I owe something to all men, from cultured Greek to ignorant savage. That is why I want, as far as my ability will carry me, to preach the gospel to you who live in Rome as well. For... I am not ashamed of the gospel. I see it as the very power of God working for the salvation of everyone who believes it, both Jew and Greek. I see in it God's plan for imparting righteousness to men, a process begun and continued by their faith. For as the scripture says, the righteous shall live by faith which really all is a great setup, not only for the difficult sections we're about to be in, but also for the entirety of this whole letter to the Roman fellowship. Because if, like back in his preamble, you really pay attention to the linchpin of Paul's emphasis and logic here, I would say the whole section would actually sound a little bit like this. The gospel of Jesus that Jesus lived, died, and now lives again, which binds our hearts in ever-present love and togetherness and is the source of our spiritual strength and which makes us living parts of each other in Jesus. Yes, the gospel of Jesus that always draws us back to fellowship with each other, no matter the obstacles and trials that the world and Satan throw at us, and which never returns void in those who yearn for the results of the Lord. For they find themselves under a sort of universal obligation and cannot stop pursuing every man, woman, and child with the glories of, yes, you guessed it, the gospel of Jesus, which must be preached to be believed which far from being shameful actually erases shame because it is the diffusion of the power of God through human lives in salvation by belief as God's plan for putting his own righteousness into the hearts of humanity, which can only occur in those who put their weight, the weight of their confidence, their active belief in, you guessed it again, the gospel of Jesus which is, by the way, that the righteous shall live by faith. 
and just as certainly, and by the very words of Jesus, we can believe it. And as we'll see highlighted by Paul time and again in Romans, it also is that faith shall cause the righteousness of Jesus to live where? In us. Isn't all of this just some gloriously wondrous good news? All right, let's keep reading. Now, the holy anger of God is disclosed from heaven against the godlessness and evil of those men who render truth dumb and inoperative by their wickedness. By which we pivot from the joyously refreshing opening of Romans 1 into its, I would say, famously challenging second half. But first thing first, the holy anger of God. Why does it burn? Well, because the truth that is mentioned here is the truth of the gospel. The gospel, we just heard all the glories of, namely, that it connects people in love and fellowship. It is spiritual strength. It creates spiritual union. It ends disconnection. It lends power. It causes love to flow from person to person. It creates genuine care and concern. It ends humanity's shame. It gives life and it injects all the goodness of God into the hearts of men. That is the truth of the gospel. So, you see, the tragedies of godlessness, meaning the willful act of ignoring God and evil, essentially choosing the obverse of God's desired good, are that not only do they turn us away from the opportunity to partake of the gospel's offerings, they tend to render dumb those offerings to others too. Think about it this way. Humanity tragically moves by currents. But to stand within the gospel is to stand within the onrush of another kingdom's pouring into the world. And on the other side, to not is sadly, really foolishly, to ignore all of its superior realities. And right now you might be asking yourself, am I being too strong in saying sadly, foolishly? Well, listen to Paul as he continues. It is not that they do not know the truth about God. Indeed, he has made it quite plain to them. For since the beginning of the world, the invisible attributes of God, for example, his eternal power and divinity, have been plainly discernible through things which he has made and which are commonly seen and known, thus leaving these men without a rag of excuse. They knew all the time that there is a God, yet they refused to acknowledge him as such or to thank him for what he is or does. Simply put, we were made for union with God. From the beginning, it was so. And for a time too, and you know this, we had it. I mean, we literally walked with him. Adam and Eve enjoyed the company of God in that pleasant coolness of the garden. Then, as we also know, they fell, taking us with them which was the beginning of the phase that Paul is describing here. But still, and to keep it simple still, there remains absolutely no higher human pursuit than seeking after, desiring for, and having experience, any experience of union with God. You and I believe, of course, that God himself has already done 
everything necessary to encounter us by, you know it, taking on flesh, dying, and then rising again. And all of that is, of course, true. But you see, the coming of Jesus has not released humanity from its highest aim. It has only very clearly given it a complete focus. Before Jesus, people aimed their spiritual lives aimlessly. Now, you and I have a living, breathing target. Which actually, now that I'm on this track, let's continue further. Think about it this way. Philosophy, psychology, both of them, are typically going to tell you that the human being is a unit made up of three parts. Mind, body, spirit. Can we agree on that? And I would say human experience will tell us that three of the highest things God gives us as it pertains to himself and to knowing him are, pay attention, the will, love, and time. So friends, if we've been made for union, and if both his invisible attributes and his real subjective nature as it's been given in the incarnation of Jesus are ours in reality, well then what? Where shall we give our will, our love, our time? To our bodies? Those fabulously depreciating assets? To our our minds, which are, let's be honest, famously fallible? Or, and I'm guessing you can tell where I'm leaning in this progression, should we not give ourselves totally, unreservedly, to the life of the Spirit? Should we not look at his invisible attributes and those totally visible ones from the life of Jesus and delve deeper in him by delving further into this inner life he has chosen to give us? I mean, what if all of this is truly only a prelude to the heavenly realities? How will we have used our will, our love, our time? And actually... I can show you what making the wrong choice looks like because, again, Paul continues. Thus, they became fatuous in their argumentations and plunged their silly minds still further into the dark. Behind a facade of wisdom, they became just fools. Fools who would exchange the glory of the eternal God for an imitation image of a mortal man or of creatures that run or fly or crawl. They gave up God, and therefore God gave them up to be the playthings of their own foul desires in dishonoring their own bodies. I was telling Jenny this week about a new theory that I've been having lately, and here it is. I believe that within every man, woman, and child, there are two potentially limitless, I'll call them empires, like places to be explored, expanded, enjoyed, and possessed. Two of them. They are the mind and the spirit. Both of them have been given to us by God, and we are free to use or not use them really to the level of our own interest and engagement. On the positive side, If we unite these dual empires within the limitless king of kings, I mean, I'm saying we move on to a whole new plane of existence. And I think that's what we see happening in the book of Acts. But on the negative side, 
If we ignore the spiritual empire within and become really stuck on the life of the mind and and sort of totally self-focusedly inwardly, I think that's where we end up with verses 21 through 24 here. Because it's interesting, isn't it? Did you notice? When we try to focus everything upon the thinking of man without Jesus, we end up tending toward the totally non-permanent, our bodies. The mind alone cannot satisfy. Without Jesus, it eventually seeks to satisfy itself in the simplest possible way by moving outward rather than further inward. And friends, I know, believe me, it's Jenny's torture. It's her burden. I know all of this is very esoteric. But here's what I want to encourage you with. In the life of the two empires, what a joy it is to be led deep into our thoughts by that calm, guiding hand of Jesus. Because he's the one who's whispering there within our spirit. Really, to ruminate is to meet with him. Well, then we get to this next tough section. Which actually, before I even read through it, before we listen to these words that sound really hard... I want to frame your response to these words with the words that follow in chapter 2, verse 1. Listen. Now, if you feel inclined to set yourself up as a judge of those who sin, let me assure you, whoever you are, that you are in no position to do so. For at whatever point you condemn others, you automatically condemn yourself, since you, the judge, commit the same sins. All right, we'll begin again in chapter 1, verse 25. These men deliberately forfeited the truth of God and accepted a lie, paying homage and giving service to the creature instead of to the Creator, who alone is worthy to be worshipped forever and ever. Amen. God therefore handed them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged the normal practices of sexual intercourse for something which is abnormal and unnatural. Similarly, the men, turning from natural intercourse with women, were swept into lustful passions for one another. Men with men performed these shameful horrors, receiving, of course, in their own personalities, the consequences of sexual perversity. And friends, while some might say that this represents the final word on the seriousness of those sins, I would say that God's seriousness about them were actually far more fully represented in the Old Testament. I mean, according to the entirety of the scriptural record, there is no spiritual or logical argument for calling these behaviors the highest and best for anyone. So does that mean that we're called to demonize or attack Absolutely not. Or conversely, are we called to normalize and give our okay? I'm going to be really blunt. That is a lazy way to keep a peace that brings no peace. My friend, your job in the midst of our culture is to follow Jesus for yourself and to seek to set all others' eyes on him. Let me say those three words again. All others' eyes. I mean, let 
him teach you how, in the midst of great permissiveness, you can learn to follow him with love and with grace and with reality. You know, I think often of his example with that woman in the temple in John 8, I would say, let our presence in this world be as his was there. Let's keep reading. Moreover, since they considered themselves too high and mighty to acknowledge God, he allowed them to become the slaves of their degenerate minds and to perform unmentionable deeds. They became filled with wickedness, rottenness, greed, and malice. Their minds became steeped in envy, murder, quarrelsomeness, deceitfulness, and spite. They became whisperers behind doors, stabbers in the back, God-haters. They overflowed with insolent pride and boastfulness, and their minds teemed with diabolical invention. They scoffed at duty to parents, they mocked at learning, recognized no obligations of honor, lost all natural affection, and had no use for mercy. More than this, being well aware of God's pronouncement that all who do these things deserve to die, they not only continued their own practices, but did not hesitate to give them their thorough approval to others who did the same. At which point, my friends, and especially after the difficulties of the conversation we were just having, I'd remind you, all sin is sin which Jesus already came to set us free from. So let us not be snared any longer by any of this. Let us not waste another day wallowing in our former fallen nature when Jesus is perfectly willing to start teaching us the new. Remember those words? The past is finished and gone. The new has come. But friends, it can only properly arrive for those and in those who believe the work of Jesus is actually, as he said, finished. That's really the question as we finish today. Do you believe his final words as spoken from the cross? Because if you want to glory in his presence and his words after the resurrection, you must do business with the cross first. So I'll say it again. It is finished. Now, do you believe what he said 